the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. All right, it's Monday the 7th of May and I've got a... Um, May of November. And I've got a little bit of a sniff that there's some harvesting going on in areas of northern Victoria at the moment. If that's you, we'd love to hear from you today on the program. Give us a call. Let us know if you're out there trying to bring in some barley or some lentils or something else. Maybe windrowing some canola. Would love to hear if there's a bit of harvesting going on. Plus, we'll continue to look at the floods and their impact. You might have thought the water's moved on from Machuca Moama, but there's people in that region still doing it quite tough with water around homes. We'll speak to one of those today on the program. We'll also head down further down the river to Swan Hill as well. As I said, would love to hear from you on the program on that or any of our stories. And if you're getting a little bit of harvesting going on, Give us a ring now. We'd love to talk to you. Right now, though, let's get some rural news and information. There's some stories in here you want to hear. Angus Verley has them for you today. Good afternoon, Angus. Thanks, Was. Investigations have begun into the cause of a fire at an agricultural research centre in South Australia's southeast, which caused more than $2 million worth of damage. On Friday nights, about 30 CFS firefighters battled the inferno at Struan Research Centre stopping it from spreading to the nearby historic Struan House, which dates back to 1875. But the research centre itself, which is run by the state government's South Australian Research and Development Institute for Crop and Livestock Studies, could not be saved. Investigations into the cause of the blaze have been complicated by the presence of hundreds of litres of formaldehyde. And staying in South Australia, similar to the Wimmera, large areas of bean crops around the lower southeast have been decimated by recent wet weather combined with humid days and storm fronts. Millicent farmer Sam Crosser says some paddocks have been entirely lost, while others have seen at least 50% yield reduction. He says while stripe rust has heavily impacted wheat crops, it's chocolate spot and other fungal diseases causing heavy losses in beans. It just keeps raining like continuously and then, I mean, we're not flooded out anything like that in the eastern states, but there's water laying in a lot of paddocks, probably as wet as it's been all year. And then when the sun does come out, the humidity just goes through the roof and that's just a perfect storm for the fungal diseases, I suppose. It's the wettest I've seen for the start of November, trying to get shearing done and all those sort of things. So it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting when the sun does come a lot of flies. Yeah, I'm not be standing in a photo right now that I've sown and it's pretty much a write-off as well. It's probably 150 mil a couple of weeks, so yeah, yeah. not ideal. I mean, there's plenty worse off over in the eastern states there, you know, a couple of feet underwater, so yeah, it could be worse, I guess, but yeah, definitely not ideal. According to the Bureau of Meteorology, Australia had its second highest area average rainfall for October since 1975, and in far west New South Wales, Broken Hill recorded its wettest October on record. That has increased the amount of bush food growing in the outback. Aboriginal bush food producer David Doyle believes with the increased rain, he has seen the most native plant species in a decade. The Barkindji and Malingapa man says it will help some species of plants survive. So this time last year I went around and um, I'd been looking for a native mint, which are the river mint, that I hadn't seen for a really long time, but I knew that it grew in our region. And last year I found two plants. And I thought, that's great, you know, I'll be able to find more of it because I'd located the region that they were growing and the type of countryside that they were growing in. They're the only two plants I found for a whole year. So I'd gone back to the place 
again this year, about a month ago, and there's probably about two dozen of the same plant growing in the area. So to be able to see that one growing and then also to be reproducing has been really fantastic. And I think it was due to the animals having to rely on eating plants that they normally wouldn't eat because these are highly aromatic plants that the animals generally stay away from, but they're um, now having a chance to, to recover and regenerate, which is what this rain's done for us. Darwin Aquaculture Centre is currently trialling the spawning of black dewfish. The local species is in high demand for its flesh, while its swim bladder is considered a delicacy in Asia. Andrea Taylor from the Darwin Aquaculture Centre on Channel Island says it is a promising species for fish grow-out aquaculture, but it's still early days. This is the third time that we've had a a dewfish spawn at the centre. And, uh, yep, it's all going well. What have been some of the challenges with this project? Uh, Getting broodstock, um, getting them to spawn, uh, getting good quality eggs, um, cannibalism with the uh, late larval stages of of, um, uh, of the larvae. And apart from that, everything's been pretty promising. Um, and this, this latest run has um, definitely shown improvements over our first trial. And it was a big weekend in Catherine with station workers from across the region pouring into town for the Ringers Rugby Sevens Tournament. The event attracts ringers and station hands from across the top end and the Barclay, and even a few from WA, with more than 150 players performing for eight men's and four women's teams, each vying for the winner's shield. Organiser Jim Leonard says it's a good get-together. I guess they all want to socialise. It's the end of the year, so they get an opportunity to come to town. Um, they don't have to come to town for work. They can come to town and socialise. They can come to town, play a bit of footy, give something for the ringers to do at the end of the year. And, um, you know, they all come along and, and play in good spirits. Um, it's only a couple of cartons of beer first prize. We, we don't have prize money for that reason. We, we just want people to play for the, play for the you know, the, the badge of honour, I guess, to, to win the ringers rugby trophy at the end of the day. So, yeah. And whilst I've got some results from that tournament, in the men's competition, Chili Springs, made up of players from Brunchilly and Helen Springs stations, just north of Tennant Creek, beat the Barclay Santas 12 points to 5. And the women's final was between the CPC Cowgirls and Wet Cows, which is made up of players from various stations. The Cowgirls came away with the win, 15 points to nil, and Nadia Park from Bunda Station scored the final try of the match, and she says the team's professional preparation was key to securing victory. Oh, it feels so great. Most of the team has never played footy in their life, so it was a pretty surprising win, but we won all of our prior games, so we're feeling pretty good about it. Um, So we actually didn't do any prep. The team got together about five minutes before the game and we just did some stretches and laid down a few base rules of what we got to do and just went from there. So, Was that's it for Rural News? That's the professional preparation I can get behind. (laughs) Absolute cracker there. Angus Verley, thanks very much for that. It sounds like a fun weekend in Catherine, the Ringers Rugby Sevens tournament going on there. You're with the Country Hour, as I said. I've got a bit of word that uh, some... Uh, harvesting's going on in Victoria now. We've got some barley getting harvested on, on Twitter. I know Matt Whitney's put up a little video today of uh, Commodus barley getting harvested in the northern Victorian Mallee. I'm interested to know if that's the same for you. Would love to know what you're up to. You can send us a text, 0467 842 722. I think there's some lentils 
getting taken in in a few other places as well. So let us know. We'd love to see. Now, if you're trying to text us a photo, I can't see them. There's a gremlin in our system. I know we used to be able to do that. Can't see them. So don't send me a photo, but if you can send me a few words telling me what you're up to, or indeed give us a call and have a chat, 1300-977-222. Would love to hear that as well. We'll start with the floods, though, away from the harvest because despite the media moving on and the peak being achieved in the Echuca Moama area, the reality and continued pressure from floods in that area continues with water sitting around homes, destroying crops and infrastructure in its way. Fleur Ferris is a writer and farmer at Moama, who we first spoke to during the mad rush of preparations of approaching floodwater. I've caught up with her a few times during the flooding event and seemingly never-ending effort of battling the floodwaters that were coming to her home with speaking about what her and her family were doing. I actually caught up with Fleur Ferris for an update to find out what she's doing and it doesn't really stop uh, a short time ago. Here's that conversation for you. Fleur Ferris, it's weeks since we first spoke to you, just after you had the sandbag army turn up at your place and you're preparing for floodwaters. Then last yes. time we spoke to you, it was almost getting close to peaking and you were saying goodbye to your home. How are things yeah. looking at your place now? Uh, well, it, it got completely flooded, so um, not inside the house. The sandbags held, which was great. Um the water, all the crops were inundated and it was lapping right up at the concrete. So we were literally uh, millimetres from it coming onto where it would come into the doors. So extremely fortunate, extremely lucky that the house is still dry inside. Um, the roads are still underwater, but it is receding now. So uh, that's a good sign. Um, we spoke to someone in the SES and they said that because of the water still coming down the Murray um, and what can come through the Barmer Choke, there's more water coming down than, than can get through, so it is going to spill. And they expect that it will um, – the water might hang around for a little bit longer, maybe up to six weeks. So those who are out of their homes needed to prepare for that, that perhaps uh, they mightn't get back in for some weeks to come. And for those – Listening to this, many people would have thought, oh, we heard about the, the floods at Echuca, we heard about the peak and the and the levees and so forth at Echuca Moama, and now everyone's talking about downstream. But there's still water around your home. You still can't go to home. And in fact, you've had to move in recent weeks. That's right. Yeah, we've moved twice, actually, because we moved to a farmhouse 75 k's out of town, and we got five inches of rain in the first two days that we were there. And water was coming through that property in rivers and um, it flooded up to where our septics were and so water then couldn't drain away from the house. So we've had to move back into town in, and we're in a unit at, the po at this point um, and we may be there for about six weeks. So, yeah, it has been a bit of an ordeal and it's funny that you say that. I put something on Twitter the other day and someone come back and said, oh, I thought those floods were over. but people here who are out of their homes are not able to return like it's such a slow moving thing and it's such a lengthy disaster and just in terms of the realization of where things sit can you describe what it looks like looking out from your house at the moment around all of the infrastructure around your property and the, and the crops and so forth everything it just looks like a lake everything was just completely underwater um the sheds are completely inundated um, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's receded a little bit and um, the lawns just look grey. I don't know if that's silt or whether the, it's actually dead, 
Um, the crops are laying down in places. So there's, we, we won't be able to see the damage, though, until we can get back in, and that won't be until the water recedes. So as far as we know, all of our Moama crops are completely under, um, and the crops, some of the crops out at Bunaloo too are laying down. So it'll be interesting to find out at the end how, how substantial this damage is going to be. Yeah, so your house, for all intents and purposes, was an island for a while there with the sandbags holding and the, the water around. Now as that water recedes, you're seeing all kinds of damage and, and greyness and I'd imagine smelling yeah. with that. Yeah, there's... Our house, there's dead fish in the water, but because we had crops around the house, it seems to have acted like a filter. So we haven't got, you know, dead fish on our lawn or anything like that, but neighbours have got got them right up to the house um, because their houses were closer to the road and that's where the water came into their place. So, yeah, it's pretty smelly. The town here in Echuca, I'm in Echuca today, and there's no smell at all. It's must be, the wind must be blowing in the right direction for... Um, it to be safe from that today but um, yeah every now and again you know you'll come into town and it will be quite strong. That's yeah extraordinary and as we say you've had to move twice this has been going on for weeks as well is it frustrating how long this is dragging out for you? It is it's um we we feel very fortunate that we were able to get emergency accommodation one of my friend's was not able to. They could offer it in a neighbouring town, which is about an hour away. Um, so she was having to put messages out on Facebook saying, does anybody have any space uh, for her and her two children? So there is a real issue here with um, emergency accommodation because there's just so many more people out of their homes than there, there's, you know, than a, what is available. So... Um, it's it's frustrating and it's it's costly because you sort of turn up with out staples, you know, in the pantry and that sort of thing. So the grocery bills are massive and no laundry. It's just a it's just you know we're lucky that we got it, but it is a huge um, it's a huge thing. <laughs> I bet, I bet. And what do the next few weeks look like for you? I suppose it depends a little bit on on the rain. But what what's your yeah. next few weeks look like? It's a lot of waiting. We're we're really trying to keep things as normal as possible for the kids because everything's been so, you know, the school stopped again. Um, Their sports, we weren't able to get them into sports when we were living out 75Ks out of town. Now that we're back in, we're just trying to uh, get some normality back uh, with them attending school every day and able to go to dance and all their things that they're doing. Um, So... We're just waiting. It's just a waiting game. Good luck with it. That's all we can say, really. Um, and, and I suppose we'll just continue to check in and see how things are looking for you as you go through this for, for weeks to come. No worries. Thank you very much. That's Fleur Ferris, who is an author and farmer at Moama, still flooded out of home, has had to move twice in the last few weeks due to continued rainfall and flooding in the area and is now in Echuca. We've been catching up with her along the journey and it seems like a journey that's not ending anytime soon. We'll continue with flooding now on the Country Hour with uh, that flooding continuing to occur throughout the Riverina in northern Victoria with massive volumes of water trying to squeeze through inundated creeks and rivers and bulging over 
floodplains. At Swan Hill, the river is expected to exceed the major flood level on Friday, while major flooding is already occurring downstream at Kenley, where the Warcool joins the Murray. Bill Moore is a farmer and acting mayor of Swan Hill Rural City Council. He spoke with Deborah Pearce uh, earlier today. This is what he had to say. We're hoping we have done all the work that we need to uh, to protect everything uh, within along within the town levy. So, um, and that's happened over many years, of course, uh, in preparation from previous floods, and um, and just uh, you know a few other little council assets that uh, maybe uh, needed a little bit of extra um, attention. So that that's they've had the surveyors in there to see what we need to do there. Um, Robinvale, the same um, up there, the town levy. Uh, which is going to get its first real test up there. Mm. It's a new levy. Um, there's a few assets up there, including the community centre and the caravan park, which uh, um, which is partly uh, submerged there, the caravan park up there. So um, they're just doing some levy works up there over the weekend to protect any further incursions. Yeah, OK. Um, so those are the sort of main council infrastructure things that you're expecting to, to go underwater or to be affected? Yes, at this point in time, yes. Um, as you know... Um, um, the rest of the the rural levies council has no control over those. That's uh, for private landholders, and um, of course the SES look after that in conjunction with all the other authorities um, and issue appropriate warnings where necessary for people to evacuate, if necessary. And that's happened as well over the weekend uh, around Kenley, you know, the confluence of the Warkill and the Murray there. Um, so that's uh, putting a lot of pressure on. There's over 110,000 megalitres a day coming in from the Warkill, meeting waters from the Murray, which is about 30,000 megalitres, which is going past here right now. So there's a massive amount of water there. Um, that's going to join up with uh, the water coming in from the Murrumbidgee a little bit further downstream and upstream of Boundary Bend. Um, you know, we're looking at 160-plus thousand megalitres, 170,000 megalitres a day. Um, I think there's some minor works being carried out up there as well to stop water from getting on the highway there uh, in the coming weeks. Um, so there's there's a lot happening. Um, now we've got a much clearer picture than we had last week of what uh, of what to do and where to act, and uh, and all the other authorities as well. So it's uh, we're virtually from one end to the other at the moment. We've had a few issues with levies so far too. Concerns have been raised about uh, the levies in Kundrook and Kenley, um, where where there's that ev- evacuation order in place. Do you think enough's been done to maintain the levees between the floods and make sure they're ready? Um, well, a lot of these levees are on private land, so um, mm. w- whether that happens and what to expect, um, it's, it's every flood is different and as I've found out on our own place, uh, our own family farm, um, levees that we thought were okay um, have failed and, um, of course, we've, we've gone underwater. So the 2011 floods, the response to the 2011 floods has meant there's more water coming down the, you know, the Merrin Creek, um, so that's put a lot of pressure onto, onto the farmers on that side of the uh, the border in New South Wales, the Merrin and uh, the Merrin uh, system, there Merrin Creek and the Wadi Creeks. So um, you know, uh, it's uh, every flood is different. That's for sure. Yeah, and I think last time we spoke to you, you mentioned that you were off to do some work on, on that levy at your place. How's that looking this week? Um, well, we've had a major breach, um, which has uh, meant uh, a catastrophe, of mm. course, and we've lost considerable. Uh, crop and pastures, um, and it's you know it's, it's not it's one thing is the loss, it's the recovery and the time it takes to get to dry out and to get back to where you were. Um, you know it's a, it's a double it's a double whammy usually. Um, fortunately, we've got all our livestock or most of our livestock on dry land. Mm-hmm. Some the little bit of high ground we've got, and um, and on levy in, in that in one section that's uh, actually still holding. So we're we're hoping for the best there. Hopefully, the peak's not too far away, barring yeah. any future rain, rainfall events, which is. Uh, 
which is what everybody's looking at, the weather. Um, you know, all the bases are loaded. There's virtually no airspace in any of the dams now. Um, it's full. You know, Echuca's still above major flood level. I think I calculated the other day there's something like three to four million megalitres in the Murray alone. There's another excess of a million megalitres in the Warcool system and another oh, two to three, four million megalitres in the Darling Barker system and they're all coming down and they're all going to end up in the Murray at some point in time and we don't know just which peak comes coincide with what or one will come before the other. It's a, it's a, whole, it's a hydrologist's nightmare, I'd say. Mm, all right, Bill, I'm so sorry to hear about what's been going on at your farm and I think, you know, being a landowner but then also having to be mayor and look after everybody else, that's a huge job. Yes, well, having two hats on, I just uh, times I don't know which hat I've got on. Mm. But um, yes, as you say, it's uh, it's more the, the worry yeah. <laughs> and the stress of that side of it. And um, as I say, uh, we're not our family's not the only one going through it. Um, there are a lot of farmers out there with 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 ninety and a hundred percent of their farms underwater and uh, mass evacuations of livestock. Um, we've uh, just uh, had one farmer who's just had to get everything out in a hurry. His farms never or very always had some land that he could put stock on and hasn't happened this year. Uh, the floods are bigger than 75, um, uh, 73, 4 and 5 floods in that area, which is hard to believe because we haven't even got to that level mm. here at Swan Hill. But um, that's the nature of floods. Everyone's different and um, there's a lot of farmers on the, in the New South Wales side there that are really are doing it tough and have lost uh, considerable areas of, uh, of, their, of their farms. Stories that we keep hearing, Councillor Bill Moore there, farmer and acting mayor of Swan Hill Rural City Council, speaking to Deborah Pearce. You're listening to the uh, Country Hour today. It is 26 past 12 right now and floods are just the latest natural disaster to increase demand for the services provided by Food Bank, which helps uh, getting food to those who need. But despite producing food that we all need and services like that need, farmers themselves are becoming uh, affected by food insecurity. At least that's according to Food Bank CEO Brianna Casey, who says the, her organisation is having to purchase food where it's previously had it donated. And she's speaking here about that problem with Peter Somerville. It's really important to recognise whilst there is a huge part of Eastern Australia currently underwater and, and experiencing devastating flooding, there's also a large number of communities across Australia still recovering from previous natural disasters over the last few years. We're still providing food relief into areas affected by the 2019-2020 bushfires uh, that some people call the Black Summer bushfires, but it was certainly longer than summer. Um, Communities such as the Northern Rivers of New South Wales and Southeast Queensland went through devastating floods earlier this year. We are going to be assisting those communities not for days and weeks, but for months and years, because we know it takes time to rebuild and time to recover. And just as we see in drought, uh, when the rains do come, it doesn't rain dollars. It takes time to rebuild again. And we really want people and communities to have confidence that Food Bank will be there to wrap their arms around you for as long as it takes. And are you worried that those same natural disasters and particularly the more recent ones, that they will erode the ability of farmers to support you in providing produce? We know that farmers and growers are amongst the most creative, clever, resilient people on the face of the earth. Um, I have a, an agri background. I absolutely respect and appreciate how hard our farmers are working 
to really mitigate what has been more frequent and more severe natural disasters over the last few years. So I know farmers are going to be working incredibly hard to make sure they can endure these changes. Um, but I appreciate that the more focus we put on efficiency on farm and in our supply chains, the less food there's going to be for Food Bank to rescue. But you're not necessarily finding it harder to source the raw products that you need in the face of those tightening margins and supply constraints. Right now we are, absolutely. In fact, we're having to buy a great deal of fresh produce uh, across multiple states and territories because we're not getting it through food rescue. We're seeing uh, variations in the specification requirements, so there's not enough product coming through rescue channels. Um, we absolutely appreciate why that is happening, and our absolute goal in this process is to make sure that farmers receive an income for the product that they are producing and, and the product that they are growing. Uh, but we also desperately need these products and we need to be able to incentivize donation of products into food relief. And it's one of the reasons that we've been working with the likes of the National Farmers Federation, with our retailers, with transport and logistics companies to really advocate for a tax incentive. We want to see a food donation tax incentive so that if a grower or a farmer is donating a product for the purposes of food relief, that there's actually a tax benefit in doing that. And similarly, for those small businesses out there that are in transport and logistics, we'd love to see them get a tax incentive as well, because at the end of the day, we don't want to see anything wasted. We want to make sure when a product comes out of the, the soil, comes off a tree, whatever the case may be, harvested off a paddock, that it actually ends up in the tummies of people who can appreciate it. You know, we are recognised as having the best produce and the best farm products in the world. The worst thing to happen would be to see it ploughed back in. So if we can use tax levers and other incentives to get more food into the homes of vulnerable Australians, it's a win-win for everyone. That's Food Bank CEO Brianna Casey uh, speaking there with... Peter Somerville about the situation they're facing, having to buy food, especially in difficult times like floods and what's being experienced around such a large part of Australia right now. You're listening to The Country. Coming up, we'll talk about export hay and alternative wines with an interesting event going on Mildura Way over the weekend. More on that shortly. But before we do any of that, let's find out what's making regional news headlines with Laura Mayers uh, from our regional newsroom. Good afternoon, Laura. Good afternoon, Warwick. Authorities in Mildura have provided a community update as floodwaters in the Murray River continue to rise. Their latest forecast data shows the river could exceed the minor flood level at the Mildura Weir this week, with major flooding a possibility by the end of the month. Emergency services say existing levees along suburban, er suburban areas are not expected to be overtopped by floodwaters. However, authorities will be monitoring at-risk communities, including Nanjuglok and Collingan, and Mirbin. A solar farm with close to 4,000 panels is set to be built outside of Horsham. Horsham R Rural City Council awarded ESCO Pacific the contract with work on the $225 million project to begin in late 2023. Managing Director Steve Raidmaker says the farm will be built on arable land near the Horsham substation to avoid installing additional electricity infrastructure. 
The Victorian Electoral Commission is urging those eligible to vote in the upcoming state election to ensure their details are up to date. All voters must be correctly enrolled to vote by 8pm on Tuesday the 8th of November. The Commission says details such as names and addresses should be updated if they have changed since the federal election in May. And the head of Australia's Fisheries Management Authority has blamed climate change for the decline of a native fish species. About 110 tonnes of jackass marwong are fished off trawlers off of Victoria's east coast each year, but only 15% of the species' original population remains. After a decade of below-average breeding, the Australian Fisheries Management Authority reduced quotas and introduced exclusion zones. AFMA CEO Wes Norris admits authorities were too slow to respond to climate change. And for more news and stories, you can head to your local ABC station online. Thanks, Laura. Laura Mayers there with regional news headlines. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Just quickly on the text, before we head to the Weather Bureau, I've been asking a bit of sneaky harvesting going on out there. Matt Whitney's got a little video up of harvesting some barley uh, already. We've heard some stories, some lentils are being done as well in different areas around the place. Wanted to know if you've dipped your toe in the water yet. You can give us a call, 1300 or text 0467 That's what Bob at Wilker, Wilker? Uh, between Birchip and Warwick, Namil, by the looks of it, says, Hi, Warwick. Still putting fungicide on lentils and getting bogged. I bet you are, Bob. It's a year for it. You can always send us a sneaky picture of that if you'd like to. You can send the email countryhour at abc.net.au. Uh, this one, this cut off on me. We're so lucky to be doing pit silage at Ellen Bank for a dairy farmer. A big shout out. And then the text message stops. So you can send that one again if you want, and we'll get the shout-out out there. Let's have a big shout-out to the Weather Bureau right now, the Bureau of Meteorology. Keris Arndt, senior forecaster there, can take you through the forecast. G'day, Keris. G'day, Warwick. Uh, what's it looking like today? Beautiful sunny weekend in my part of northern Victoria. Is that continuing today? Yeah, well, it's definitely started out that way today. Um, similar to yesterday, started out fine, and then we got some showers and thunderstorms developed with the cloud in the afternoon. We've already seeing a couple of flashes about the kind of central islands and out towards uh, parts of the, the hills in West Gippsland. Um, and we're basically expecting those showers and thunderstorms to pick up as the day goes on. Um, pretty likely see a uh, severe thunderstorm warning for, for heavy rain about those Gippsland hills um, in particular. It's probably the most likely place to see it. Uh, any, and any storm or shower is going to be really slow. So it's the kind of situation where They'll develop, they'll increase, drop a fair bit of rain in one spot and then slowly die out. So it's the kind of, kind of day that, you know, you might get a good drop and your neighbour will get nothing. Um, it's uh, very hit and miss is the story. But most, there was a bit of that days, going on along the, um, along the Murray, the New South Wales side last night too, yeah, just some, yeah. some random falls. Yeah, exactly. So we had a couple of storms that went down just to the west of Echuca and... Uh, uh, near Swan Hill as well, and but the rest of the Murray, oh, and near, near Albury-Wodonga as well, but yeah, the rest of the Murray was pretty much left alone. So similar kind of stuff. Um, yeah, just the most of, especially central and eastern Victoria, um, uh, will have showers and storms threatening. Very, very hard to say exactly the address is going to, that it's going to get wet, though it's one of those days. So. And how much of a, a dump of rain are you expecting in those storms? 
Yeah, well, I mean, most places won't get anything. Um, but if you do get stuck under one that's uh, that's moving really slowly and it just uh, it keeps on going, you could get you know rainfall rates of say twenty, thirty mils an hour. Um, uh, so if it is over you for an hour, there's there's a good twenty or thirty mils. Um, most likely, as I said, about those kind of hills in West Gippsland, but um, almost anywhere could see yeah this sort of potential for somewhere between kind of ten and thirty millimetres. But most places are going to miss out. So. And as we move through the rest of the week, what's it looking like? Yeah, well, it's quite warm. Um, we're feeling quite spring-like or late spring-like even where we've got above average temperatures for a lot of the state and it's very humid as well um, over the coming days uh, and that just continues uh, to increase as we go later into the week so Tuesday a little bit warmer a little bit more humid fog in the morning and then um, showers and thunderstorms mainly about the east of the state less activity than we're getting today on Wednesday, we get a little bit of wind around, the northerly uh, starting to pick up as opposed to the very stagnant conditions we've got today and tomorrow. Showers uh, and storms pretty much just about the far east and very isolated, otherwise pretty dry day across the state, um, uh, apart from being hot and, uh, and quite humid still. Um, and then the next system kind of moves through on Thursday, bringing return to the showery and thunderstorm activities to, to western Victoria and then extending into eastern parts of the state. Um, and these ones are probably a bit more likely to bring some, some bigger winds down with them as well. So uh, kind of shift from the, the, the rainy storms to, to windier storms on Thursday as it moves through. And then as we get close to the weekend, we start to see a bit of a link to the tropics as we get later into the weekend. So uh, pretty widespread showers and storms, similar to what we're getting today um, across the state Friday and Saturday. And then we, we really link into the tropics on Sunday, get a good kind of atmospheric river set up and uh, drags a whole lot of moisture down across the state. So Sunday's looking like the next, uh, next big wet day at this stage. Um, but uh, it's still... Like the guidance is still jumping around a fair bit uh, in terms of timing and exactly how much and where, but it's definitely kind of southeast Australia in the firing line for, for more rain come Sunday. It's another big wet on Sunday, be warned, and we'll keep an eye on that and how it develops throughout the week, I'm guessing. Yeah, it seems about right. It's the, the, the one we'll be watching. I mean, Thursday could be interesting with storms coming through and some winds, but Sunday's probably the biggest day of the week. Um, and atmospheric weather's a new one for me, Keris. That's, <laughs> that's basically the tropical moisture connecting up with those those uh, fronts that come across uh, the east coast that have been giving us so much grief, especially in October, yeah? Yeah, atmospheric river, it's a term that's been thrown around a bit. It's when you get that big um, kind of northwest cloud band dry, driving a whole lot of water down from the tropics across the, the centre of the continent. So um, I'm not sure that. how, you know, you know, how scientific you want to be, but I think it describes the situation pretty well. Yeah, no, it certainly does. I, I, I like it. Uh, any warnings we need to be aware of, Karis? Uh, well, look, just keep an eye out for severe thunderstorm warnings today. Otherwise, there's not really much around. Um, and that's kind of the story for the next couple of days, really. Fantastic. Thanks very much for the update. Thanks, Warwick. Keris Arndt there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast. And it sounds like Sunday we're in for another big rain event. So we'll keep an eye on that throughout the week on the country. You know what time we have our regular chat to the Bureau around this time every day. So tune in there. And if you have any questions, send them through. You know the phone numbers or email countryhour at abc.net.au and we'll try our best to put those to the forecaster before an event like that arrives because I know there's 
obviously great interest certainly at this time and we'll do our best to get your questions answered by the experts. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is 22-1. Let's continue on our journey together and talk hay on the program now with big problems uh, hay producers are facing in what has been a failed season for many of them uh, of trying to get crops into a bale. What's it going to mean for export hay markets, which are already having a difficult time of it with loss of key markets? Jeff Walker is a national grower and quality assurance manager with Exporter Hay Australia. He says that the business will look to alternatives like straw to try and fill a void left behind by a failure to oat and hay. You know, we've been affected, you know, probably by about fifty percent here in Victoria and the eastern states. You know, obviously uh, production will be down. You know, we're looking to source uh, other products, you know, straw and whatever we can do with growers to, um, you know, to uh, help their situation, help our situation as well. Obviously, good quality hay is going to be hard to find, and there's going to be a lot of poor quality hay. Uh, is there an export market for that poorer quality oat and hay? Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, you know, beef, beef grades and those sorts of things that have uh, exported. Uh, there's you know mid to low grade. You know, there's there's uh, different end users out there that you know require different products. Uh, so look, um, anything at the right moisture and uh, you know without severe mould damage and those sorts of things, you know, is certainly exportable. You talked about a 50% reduction. Do you know what what tonnage you now expect to process this year compared to what, what you'd been planning on? Look, we're still working through that at the moment. Like, I'm currently uh, with farmers uh, today and, uh, you know, they've, they're still cutting, you know, or just started cutting. Like, these crops are mature, but they are still... Uh, they're still, still going to make reasonable hay. So... Uh, that end figure or end percentage is still working through that. Like, um, uh, so you know, I'm you know, reasonably confident that we'll, uh, you know, we'll be in that uh, thirty to forty thousand ton mark currently. But that may, you know, depending on future rain events, all those sorts of things, uh, it will impact on stuff that's just been cut now. But uh, hopefully, that's where you know we are aiming, uh, just here in uh, just out of Bridgewater. Obviously, rain reduces the quality of hay, but how about maturity when it's now being cut perhaps far later than ideal? Does that have a big effect on quality as well? Yeah, it does, yeah, no, no, no doubt. Um, but once again, these grades, you know, to the end user, um, you know, are still, you know, still sorted. Uh, you know, still, um, yeah, so, look, I'm, I'm confident that, uh, you know, anything... Uh, that is not severely weather damaged, uh, we'll, we'll find a place in the market. Can you talk about what the price for oat and hay is doing? Oh, look, I think that's a bit immature, really, you know, to, to, to discuss a price. I'd rather see strings around it, uh, feed test-wise, you know, but, you know, they, they, it's going to be strong strong pricing there, you know, it's purely just from the supply and demand side of things, you know. So, you know, look, uh, I, I think everyone realises that... Uh, the uh, the amount of tons that it's going to produce is going to be well down, so and I can expect uh, the price to be very strong. And anecdotally, it seems like there's going to be huge fodder demand in the dairy industry, particularly those flood affected farmers. Some typically self sufficient who've had their their feed wiped out. Uh, so, are you going to have to 
when you're trying to buy hay for export, are you going to have to compete with, with those players in the market too? Yeah, well, um, we are effectively one of those as well. Um, you know, as I said, we, we've they, uh, got a strong domestic arm to our business now, but our main goal is export. But, uh, you know, we you know, will be sourcing both export and domestic lines uh, that, to meet our requirements. Even going right back, Jeff, even before all, the, all of this rain caused problems, had there already been a big reduction in areas planted to hay? Yes, uh, look, at, uh, there was certainly a reduction, you know, with the strong pricing around other commodities. Uh, certainly was well back, you know, and yeah, obviously the uh, reduced opportunity to go to uh, China with uh, uh, registrations not being renewed certainly had a play uh, on that situation as well. But um, growers that have got it in their rotation and been doing hay for a long time are still in the game and still supportive of the export community. And looking back, we did see several years ago with the, the prolonged New South Wales drought that really every hay shed was virtually cleared out. Um, if we force, if we fast forward 12 months to this time next year, could we be in a similar position by then? I think, uh, yeah, I think so. There's not a lot of uh, carry now, you know, so uh, you know, I'd expect to be everything to be very empty uh, going into next season. And as well, once once people put the grain harvest behind them, will you be encouraging people to bale up as much? straw as possible and will there be a home for that if they do that? I would certainly encourage um, uh, cereal growers or uh, grain growers if they're looking to do straw to contact an exporter and make sure that you have got uh, a market for it before you do it but you know we, we are very active and looking and uh, talking to our growers about straw so yeah look if, uh, if anybody's out there thinking you're doing it I'd certainly make contact with an exporter before you do it. That's Jeff Walker from Hay Australia speaking there with Angus Verley. Uh, let's move away from the floods and the impacts on what that means for things like hay crops and uh, and farming and food bagging as well, which was talked about today. Let's talk some wine now. There's no denying that Australia's wine industry is facing some significant challenges at the moment. And certainly if you grow Shiraz, Merlot, Cabernet and any other red varieties, it's getting increasingly harder to find wineries that are willing to take grapes and then pay a price for that fruit that covers the cost of production. So is there anything out there that can help the industry bounce back? Well, that's where the 21st Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show comes in. It's just wrapped up in Mildura with 776 entries received this year. Uh, Karina Wright from Oliver's uh, Taranga Vineyard in McLaren Vale is the wine show's president and a panel chair judge. She says while many alternative varieties are difficult to pronounce, there are a number of reasons why they're gaining in popularity. Yeah, I mean, it's tough times. China pulling out, um, you know, it's a major amount of Shiraz and Cabernet in particular that was heading over there. Um, these varieties, you know, probably weren't really heading over to China and they're in huge demand, but obviously coming from a much lower base. I think there's some great opportunities for some of these varieties in, um, you know, to suit the regions really well. Um, I can see quite a bit of uh, grapes being, vines being changed over, so there's some, a lot of grafting happening, a bit of pulling out. Um, so I think... You know, um, we're going to see more and more alternatives coming to play. Sustainability seems to be another really big thing that agriculture broadly is facing. 
where do these new varieties fit in terms of their water use and their suitability to this changing climate that we're seeing? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Australia got a whole you know, a few French varieties come over here, um, and there's ten thousand Italian varieties and something. You know, there's way um, more varietal choice out there that we haven't even played with yet in Australia, but. You know, some of the early varieties that we've been working on are ones that have worked really well in terms of being quite drought tolerant, heat tolerant, high natural acidity, you know, things like that, and working um, well in regions that maybe have disease pressure or um, water pressure, those sorts of things. So, you know, that's been one of the focuses and one of the reasons and drivers, you know, uh, for alternative varieties in the first place. There also seems to be an increasing desire to match wine with food. Does that benefit alternative varieties over? more mainstream ones? Really, yeah, that, that's exactly it. Uh, alternative varieties um, are often a bit more textural in some ways. Um, they sort of aren't maybe sort of competing with the foods. They've got a bit more of a tannin structure sort of in play. And, you know, we all know when we, you know, when we were lucky enough to go to Italy or France or, or Spain or somewhere else and you're sitting in a tiny little place and you're just drinking whatever's there and you're eating whatever's there and it all se- sort of seems to work, um, I think... Uh, you know, Australians are eating a lot more that way now and, um, you know, wanting to have wines that, you know, sing with their food and um, and also wanting to have a lot more variety. Um, so, yeah, I think alternative varieties have a massive place there. At your vineyard, is there anything you're looking at planting or you've recently put in that you're expecting will be the next th- big thing? Yeah, well, Fiano's our big one um, that we really love in our vineyard. We also have Vermentino, but this year we've also planted Falangina. So Falangina comes from the same region as Fiano, um, it, which is Campania or Avellino, just inland from Positano in Italy. I'm pretty excited about that one. Uh, I'm actually heading to Italy on Saturday <laughs> night <laughs> and going to go out and taste a lot um, over there. So I'm look- really looking forward to it. It can't be an easy process, though, to find something that you like overseas and get those vines back to Australia and then be in a large enough volume to be able to replant them. What does that all involve? Oh, it's a massive process. We're very lucky that we have... um family businesses like Yalumba and uh, Chalmers who uh, have vine nurseries who are bringing in varieties. It's a, you know, it's a 10-year process and it costs a lot of money to get um, varieties in. Thankfully, they had the, uh, the foresight to start doing it you know, in the early days and so you know, some of us now have been working with some of these varieties for you know, 20 years or so. Do they necessarily grow exactly the same way when they're in Australia? How can you... Uh, you know, is there a difference to them compared to, say, a bottle that you'd pull off a shelf over in Italy? Yeah, for sure, um, and that's all to do with the different varietal, um, the different um, environmental, you know, influences that we have in each region. So, um, I, have, for example, have Menthea, which is a Spanish variety. It's grown at you know great altitude on very slaty vineyards. I don't have any altitude in McLaren Vale, um, but you know, we're seeing similar characters. Uh, Fiano, in particular, is probably one that we are seeing very similar. Um, styles but you know you're making different styles different regions uh, you know um, different influences so some elements yes and they grow similarly but you know we've really got to see how they work in Australian environs. Is it difficult to get people to try these new varieties once you get them into a bottle? Yeah, sure, especially if they can't pronounce the name. It's a, it's a bit of a trick. But um, I just encourage everyone to just, you know, check things out. Don't be scared, you know, if you don't like it, one of them. Um, it, it doesn't mean you're not going to like every, every one of that variety. And um, I think that there's, you know, some, there's a whole wide world out there that people can just um, have adventures on. So, yeah, give it a crack.
That's Karina Wright from Oliver's Taranga Vineyard in McLaren Vale, who's the president and a panel chair judge at the Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show, which wrapped up this weekend uh, in Mildura. She was speaking there with Kelly Hollingworth. You're listening to The Country. Our market's on the way. Overnights with Trevor Chappell. Hello there, Trev. Nice to talk with you again. And Rod Quinn. And well done. There's something for sleepless souls. I think for who she was and the time she was born into, she didn't do badly. And a laugh for the working masses. If a parsley farmer was being sued, could they garnish his wages? Oh, very nice. The Overnight Station of the Nation. With Trevor and Rod. I, I like listening. On ABC Radio. To market, to market. We'll work our way through the few cattle markets first and then on to the sheep and lambs. We'll begin today then in Packenham with a cattle market report there coming as always from Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Brendan. G'day. Warwick numbers increased to 970. That's 80 more than the sale of a fortnight ago with the usual buyers operating in a cheaper market in places. Quality was mixed with most weights and grades represented. The limited selection of trade cattle sold to firm demand. Grown steers and bullocks eased 20 cents. Manufacturing steers lost from 10 to 25 cents. Heavy cows eased 10 to 15 cents. Light dairy lots lifted a little, with processors loading cows for an estimated 6.95 to 8.24 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls lifted 20 cents. Vealers sold from 4.60 to 6.10. Yearling trade steers 500 to 5.20. The heifer portion 480 to 580. Grown steers 470 to 510. Bullocks 470 to 500. Heavy Frisian steers 358 to 436. Crossbreds 414 to 490. Most light and medium weight cows 230 to 342. Heavyweights 325 to 440. Heavy bulls 328 to 428. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Brendan. We'll move on now to Mortlake Cattle and Chris Agnew. Take it away, Chris. Thanks, Warwick. Numbers rose by 234 to 508 at Mortlake this week, where the quality was much improved. The sale was firm over most categories, with the exception of cows and manufacturing steers. These were 5 to 10 cents a kilogram stronger this week. A larger number of vealers on offer made from 594 to 630, almost all going back to the paddock. Yearling steers and heifers to the trade 480 to 570. Grown steers and heifers 430 to 520. Feeders paying to 520. Manufacturing steers between 345 and 460 cents. General run of beef cows were making between 378 and 418 cents. Very few dairy cows on offer this week made to 348 cents. Cows back to the paddock 292 to 365. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Chris. We'll continue. Lucky last in the cattle market run for today is the Wagga Cattle Market Report. Leanne Dax has that for you today. Good afternoon, Leanne. Good afternoon. Agents yarded 2,740 cattle, of which there were 455 cows. Quality remained mixed, however, there were some very good trade and heavy export cattle. Competition was erratic, particularly across feeder steer categories. Prices fell back 20 to 30 cents and more in places. Feeder heifers held up well, equaling steer prices. Lightweight steers back to the paddock, 625 to 765. Few veal this week, 534 to 584. Trade heifers, 430 to 534. Trade 
sorry, feeder heifers, lighter weight, 440 to 538. The medium weights, 490 to 539. Trade steers, 480 to 565. Lightweight feeder steers, 450 to 615. The medium weights, 485 to 559. Processing steers, the heavy portion, 430 to 531. Bullocks, 430 to $5. Cows were firm for the heavy end, 390 to 425, middle run 310 to 385. Leanne Dax, MLA. Lucky last is the sheep market for us today. That's coming from Bendigo Sheep and Land Market Report. Jenny Kelly has that information for you and it sounds like there's a bit going on there. Jenny, what can you tell us? Good afternoon. Biggest yarding so far this season with 27,000 lambs and nearly 10,000 sheep. Competition was keen and all classes of stock sold to dearer trends with heavy export lambs a highlight. Suckers over 30 kilos carcass weight were up to $20 dearer, selling from $245 to a top of $290 to average $265 a head. There was also some very strong sales in the heavy 26 to 30 kilo lambs at $215 to $265 to average $236. These heavy lambs were well over 800 cents with some pens bouncing upwards of towards $9. Trade lambs were 5 to $12 dearer which had the best runs averaging between 800 to 830 cents or 180 to 217 dollars for most. Planer types 160 to 180 and some of these were still under 800 cents. More store lambs and they were 5 to 10 dearer at 110 to 140 dollars for light types. 142 to 165 for those with more frame. Sheep deer by 6 to 12. Big crossbred ewes 144 to 175 dollars. And heavy merino ewes 140 to 168. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Jenny. That's almost all the time we have for you on the country. I did get this text from Kath earlier as we were speaking about the situation farmers were facing. Uh, in with floods, whether it be in a Chukamoama and water still not getting away from some of the areas there or with floodwaters approaching in uh, the Swan Hill sort of region and beyond uh, on the Murray there. Kath says, Hi was with flooded farmers having to so much to do and plan for, could our ABC do some groundwork? And when you're talking to them, as well as wishing them good luck with it, as I did earlier, somewhat awkwardly, apologies for that, um, offer them Info on community groups, i.e. charities and government services available to help them. Just a thought. I imagine they're pretty overwhelmed with their situations. Yep. Kath, very good point. Thank you very much for that. I'll do a fair bit of that off air. And we've actually reached out to groups uh, providing grants and services to farmers like Agriculture Victoria and, and the like about how farmers can access grants and uh, the uh, the, the help that is out there in terms of cleaning up from the floods too. Um, at the moment, especially with caretaker provisions with an election coming on, believe it or not, meant uh, they haven't been able to talk to us yet, but we'll continue to put in those requests and try and get that information and, and spend some more time on this program talking about what can be accessed and the help that is out there. As I said, though, that is all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Remember our website, abc.net.au slash rural. Right now you can read about the difficulties with a cherry season and also a bumper mango season, but the hard work it takes to get the labour to pick it might mean up to 40% waste on mango farms. That information and more on the website, abc.net.au slash rural. That's it for us today. Catch you tomorrow.